In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is speaking, and in verse 28, He says this, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is is light. Now, if I were a prosperity preacher or a health and wealth preacher, I might say to you, I've received a word from the Lord that somebody in here needed that verse. And that would be hokey. And here's why that's hokey. Everybody in here needs that verse. I don't need a special word from the Lord to know that we are all weary. We are all heavy laden. It is very likely that the majority of us came here this morning with something resting on our hearts. In fact, I dare say that if you are living and breathing this morning, that you bear a burden. It might be health. It might be financial. It might be relational. It might be general anxiety. It might be something else. And that you're weary. And what does Christ say? Lay it on me. I will give you rest. This morning's message is from Hebrews, actually. It's from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And the title of this morning's message is is called The God of Rest. The God of Rest. Because true rest from weariness, from burden, can only come through God. That's where it comes from. Now, we witness day in and day out the world trying to relieve burdens and weariness and exhaustion in many different ways. In many different avenues, we are over-medicated, we are overstimulated, and we are consumed by what the world has to provide for us. But none of those things will ultimately provide the rest that truly heals. Many of us, when I say us, I mean our culture, and I'm speaking as an individual who is an American living in the United States, who is inundated by, honestly, by wealth and prosperity in the United States. That's just what we have. Even the poorest of us are kings compared to the rest of the world for the most part. But you know exactly how it works. If I, if I only had 
a raise, then that would solve everything. Or if I only had more time, that would solve everything. Or if I only had a new car, or if I had a, a new spouse, or if I had a new whatever, that that would solve everything. And what we find is that apart from Christ, it doesn't solve anything. There's always something else. Because the world cannot satisfy the basic need that we need Jesus. God is the only one who will provide rest. Now we're going to talk a little bit about rest this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about it in a different way than we've talked about it before, and we're going to lean on last week's discussion. So if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of what happened last week. Last week, we were going through the end of chapter 3, and the author of Hebrews pulls out Psalm 95 and he's using it basically to compare and contrast two different types of individuals. The believer, the one who worships Christ with his whole heart, has every reason to exalt God with all of his being, with all of her being, to give everything to God for what God has done and is doing in the world and in their lives. And so they exalt him. But the individual who is basically just claiming Christ for uh for, for just uh, not, not for believing's sake, but for uh, their relationships or whatnot, all right, those who don't truly believe, who are falling away, if you will, uh, these individuals are in danger of condemnation. And we use Psalm 95, the author is using Psalm 95 to compare to the wilderness. See, the individuals, the Israelites in the wilderness, many of them, many of them did believe, all right? But the majority of them likely did not. They were just in the crew, if you will, right? And they fell away. So they claimed Yahweh verbally, but their heart was not oriented. Uh, or, there was no orientation of their heart towards a holy God. They did what was, what was lovely in their own eyes, but it was wicked, and thus they fell away. And so last week we talked about how the author of Hebrews, that God is using his words to warn us of the dangers of falling away. That those who persevere, those who persevere will be found in Christ. Those who do not persevere were not in Christ to begin with. And so it's a call to persevere. And today we're going to look at this concept of rest because those who persevere will enter God's rest. So would you stand with me as we read chapters four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we look at this concept of God's rest. And I hope this morning that this is encouraging for you. All right. I hope this is encouraging. I hope that you leave here today feeling very encouraged about what God has for us and His promise to us. So the author writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who had listened." For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father, it is my hope that you would use this passage and this message to convict, to encourage, and to lead us to greater faithfulness. Father, that we would be spurred on by your word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that we would persevere for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of God, and that we would look to entering the rest, your rest, uh, that has been promised to all those who have trusted in Christ. Make that uh, true this morning. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, in this context, we think a lot about rest, and oftentimes when we think of the phrase re- or the word rest, we think of relaxation, the idea of relaxing, right? Like, I need rest, I'm exhausted. Now, from the context this morning, that is not what the author is talking about. When he talks about rest, what he's talking about is entering that place of fellowship, ultimately with final- finality, in the presence of God is that entering the rest of God, meaning spending eternity with the Father, okay, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're talking about here. He's not speaking of relaxation and vacation, but instead rest is implying something more that is fruitful and spiritual in nature. And of course, in this passage, he doesn't even quote them. He doesn't, he doesn't even give a citation. He doesn't say like what Moses said or in the first book of Moses. He just says somewhere it has written. And the reason he says that is because everybody knows, his entire audience knows where this was written. And he refers to the seventh day. If we look back at the Genesis, uh, the second chapter, verse 2, we see that God rested on the seventh day from all his work that had been done. Now, folks, we often think of rest as a rest from work, right? We look at our weekends as a rest from work, that, re- that work is exhausting us. Let me be very clear, and we're going to speak about this more, more specifically in a little bit. When God rested on the seventh day, It's not because he was exhausted for making you and I. Well, I think sometimes we can exhaust God emotionally, all right? But he was not physically exhausted, all right, from his work of creation. When it says that he rested, what it's saying is the work is now complete. Creation is now final. It is done, and now I am resting. Now, here is the amazing thing that we're going to see is that God, an infinite, transcendent, and eminent being, all-powerful, is inviting you and I into that rest. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I am resting, and oftentimes it is from exhaustion, either physical or mental, I don't want to invite anybody in. I'm just like, leave me alone. I want to rest That's not what God's doing here. God is inviting us in because it's not about exhaustion. It's about his work is complete and he's inviting us in to this rest. Eventually, on the seventh day or the Sabbath, God's rest is implying that creation is finished. Now, as believers, like I've already said, we think of rest in a variety of ways. Exhaustion and sleep for our health 
And we also, from the Bible, from Scripture, we see that we are required to rest in the finished work of Christ. And so we are called to rest in the finished work of Christ. And what that means is that we're not still striving and working to earn our salvation, but we rest in the finished work of Christ who has accomplished that on our behalf. And so we rest in that work. And then finally, we enter into God's rest. So the first two are physical exhaustion and sleep that requires our attention for health and productivity. And, you know, it's interesting that the fact that we require this physical rest just demonstrates that we are not infinite beings, are we? God does not need physical rest, but we do. In fact, if you, if you go without sleep for a length of time, it will affect your health dearly. In fact, it can kill you. Exhaustion can kill. We need rest because we are finite. We are finite creatures. We need that rest. It's our frailty. Resting in the finished work of Christ implies that we are not trusting in the world to meet our needs, but rather our hope and our needs are met in Jesus. And we see in Matthew 6, as Jesus is teaching about anxiety regarding physical needs being met, he encourages his audience not to worry, not to be anxious about those things, but to rest in him, to lean upon God, because if he is going to feed the birds and clothe the lilies, how much more important are you to God, his image bearer? He's going to take care of you too. And so we rest in Christ. We are not anxious. We don't worry about those things. But as in our case for today, the concept of entering God's rest has more of an eschatological meaning. And what that means is it has more of an end times or a last things, meaning that eventually one day those who are in Christ are going to enter God's rest. A few years ago, actually several years ago now, I think it's been about 10 years, um, my wife and I were driving uh, to uh, Florida and we were passing through Georgia and the kids were in the back. Um, and in fact, actually I say kids, it wasn't even kids, it was a kid. Jackson wasn't even born yet. And we were driving uh, down to Florida and as we were driving, I, I was leading worship at the time at my former church. And so I was always thinking about songs and stuff. And I did a lot of writing at that time. And I was just, uh, one of the things, we had not gone on a vacation in a long time. And I just needed rest. I just, we just needed a break. And so as we were driving, I just started thinking about lyrics and about worship and all these things. And I told Crystal, I said, get a pad of paper. I said, I want you to start writing down lyrics. And so I started just spouting things off. Now, I wouldn't speak it in tongues, all right? She, she could understand what I was saying, all right? But I was just kind of, just said, I said, jot down these thoughts real quick. And the whole idea was that we are weary at this time, but there is going to be a time where we will be weary no more. If you are weary this morning, if you are heavy laden this morning, if you are in Christ, there will be a time where you will enter God's rest and there will be no more weary. Weariness. There will be no more heavy ladenness. There will be no more burdens because we will be in Christ. We will be in God's rest for eternity. And this is what the author of Hebrews is promising us. And what he is saying is, do not forsake this. 
do not fail to persevere because those who were in the wilderness failed to persevere and they did not enter God's rest. He keeps reminding them that they thought that they were the people of God, yet they were not allowed to enter God's rest because they did not persevere. They heard the good news. They did not believe the good news. They were with individuals in proximity of those individuals who believed the good news. But it did not rub off. Because folks, let me just tell you, salvation is not contagious. All right? It's not contagious. You can't say, well, my spouse is, is Christian enough for both of us. That's not the way it works. We have individual relationships. And so today, what's happening is, and looking, looking into next week, the author is actually pointing out that we should fear, and he uses the word fear, the idea of not entering God's rest. And let me tell you that if you do not fear God, if you do not fear the dangers of being in condemnation, then likely you do not understand the gravity of sin and the gravity of where you are outside of Christ. And so that's what I want to share this morning, and it will be encouraging, I hope. And so let's talk about this a little bit. The first is this. Let's talk about the importance of fear. Let me explain that a little bit. He says here, starting in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And so the promise of entering his rest still stands. All right, folks, there will be a day when Christ returns or we exit this life through death. There will be a time where you don't get an opportunity to trust Christ. When Christ comes, folks, that's it. That's it. There are no second chances. There will be a day when we exit this life, if Christ tarries, there will be a day when we will exit this life through the grave. You don't get a second chance, but while we are living and breathing, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And so he says, let us, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, in this verse, the author is encouraging us to fear so that we can avoid missing out on salvation or missing out on fellowship with God. And so, and like I said, by rest, we're talking about eternity. Now, it seems that this fear would contribute to us defying Jesus's command to not be anxious. Isn't fear and anxiety, aren't they related that's not what the author is aiming at here, okay? That's not what's happening here. I mean, doesn't God want us to be assured of our salvation? And if he wants us to find assurance, then, then why would he ask us to fear? Well, let me answer that. As is often the case, the term fear, especially in the Greek, in this passage is not the way that we talk about fear. It's not as if we are fearing heights or fearing snakes or fearing something else, okay? In this case, it's something more. In, in this case, it is a call to action. And I love the way Thomas Schreiner explains it, and so I'm just going to quote him. 
He says here, the reference is not, the reference to fear is not to paralyzing fear that disables or innervates. The fear commanded here is a stimulus to action like the fear that motivates mountain climbers to ensure all their equipment is working properly, provoking readers to enter God's rest and stimulating them to believe and obey. So let me me kind of summarize. The purpose of this fear is not to cause you to, is not to prevent you from doing something. I'm afraid of climbing that mountain, therefore I'm just not going to climb it. That's not what this fear is about. This fear is this. I am afraid of falling off of that mountain, so I'm going to check all my gear because I'm going to climb that mountain and I'm not going to fall. It's a, it's a provocation to action. That's what this is. We are going to persevere. And in our perseverance, we are going to make sure that we are obeying. We are going to make sure that we are believing. Because the fear of condemnation, the fear of failing, the fear of falling away is too great to keep us from being disobedient. Do we see where that fear comes in? Now here's the thing. If that kind of fear, now I think about the mountain. I love reading books and watching movies about climbing mountains. If, if fear caused every mountain climber to not climb that mountain, where would that experience go? They would never have the experience, the joy. Imagine climbing the summit of Everest or K2 or name, name one, Mount McKinley, whatever you want to talk about. If fear prevented them from climbing that summit, they would not be able to experience the mountaintop, right? If fear, if we just said the fear is too great for us to worry about God, I'm just choosing not to believe. Well, then you don't get to experience the joy of knowing and having fellowship with God. So the fear is a provocation to action. The fear has purpose. If you have a healthy fear of the mountain you will climb, then you will also take every precaution to make sure you don't fall while you climb. It provokes us to action. If we have a healthy fear of not entering God's rest or falling away, then we will take precautions to prevent this. We will obey. We will believe. We will trust Christ. We will follow Christ. We will love our neighbors. Now, I want to make two very quick points about this. First, this doesn't imply that our work and effort are adding to our salvation. That's not what's happening here. All right? Jesus is the one who saves. This fear and our dutiful response to fear are similar to the warning signs of last week. I see a sign saying danger that the Grand Canyon is a dangerous place. Take take precautions, right? Well, these are warning signs saying, listen, if you fail to persevere, you will fall away and you will stand condemned. And that's a warning sign to believers. And so what do believers do? We take precautions. We obey. We love our neighbors. We follow Christ. The fruit of our labors have purpose as evidence as we are believers. Second, why not simply try to avoid the fear? Because avoiding the fear and avoiding, uh, avoiding that fear and avoiding everything that leads to it will leave us stand condemned because you will not persevere. 
I really worry when somebody says, I don't really fear God. I don't really fear God. God's loving. I don't really fear God. That makes me really nervous because what that basically tells me is that you don't know God. Let me say that again. If you don't fear God, you don't know God. You might have some sort of cultural you know, image of who God is, but that's not the God of the Bible. I'm going to tell you right now, I am fearful of the living God. And somebody would say, well, I don't fear hell. Then you don't believe in hell. I am terrified of hell. Terrified of it. And that's why I take precautions to making sure that I am staying with and in Christ. You see how those are warnings? This isn't a work-based religion. Those works and those efforts are all evidence of salvation, not producing salvation. So God uses our fear to prevent us from falling away, which moves us to the next verse, the necessity of belief. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For who we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In verses two and three, the author is demonstrating here that hearing the good news is not sufficient for salvation. It's not sufficient for salvation. The individuals in the wilderness, every one of them heard the good news, but that did not prevent them from falling away. Because even though they heard the good news, they were disobedient and they did not believe. So they fell away. It is striking how many individuals will come to the twilight of their life and they will trust Christ for the first time. And you will ask them, is this the first time that you've ever been in church? Or is this the first time that you've ever heard the gospel? And they will say this, no, I've been in church my entire life. I've heard the genuine gospel more than once. I heard it over and over again. I just didn't believe it. Because hearing is not necessarily believing. So what does believing look like? Believing produces action. If you believe something with all your heart, if, if I believe, if I say to someone that I love my wife, all right, she can hear those words or she could hear those words and I can show her that I love my wife. It's not just about what I say, it's also about what I do. It's the same thing with the Christian life. Like our fear motivates us to action, so too belief should prompt us to action. And I've said this before. If you don't, and I said it just a minute ago, if you don't believe or do not fear God, then you likely don't know Him. And if you don't act upon hearing and believing the gospel, it's likely that you don't really believe the gospel. What does James say in chapter 2, verse 14 through 18? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, by warmed and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. True belief in the good news of Jesus Christ will prompt us to action. It will prompt us to action. Genuine fear of God and fear of hell will prompt us to faithful action in following Christ. Believers are not lazy slugs. Believers are worker bees. That's what we do. I think a lot of individuals believe that entering God's rest means it's going to be a vacation 100% of the time when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. Folks, I hate to tell you, but I, I, I believe from Scripture piecing this together that the new heaven and the new earth are going to be similar to what the garden was. And what were Adam and Eve doing before the fall? They were working. They were working. And I'm fine with that. Many of the Israelites in the wilderness believed that hearing the good news was enough, and they trusted that being in the presence of other believers would earn them the right to enter God's rest by proximity, but they were wrong. They were not allowed to enter Canaan, the promised land. Hearing the gospel is important, but living out the gospel is evidence of a changed heart. If I or others cannot tell the difference between you and someone in the world who does not believe in God, do you really believe in God? Meaning that the gospel provokes a changed heart, not just a new intellectual affirmation. There is a change about how we live. The good news changes people. You can't help it. And so it's my prayer that we as a church, as Gospel Life Community Church, wouldn't simply be gospel-centered in our preaching and teaching and conversations, but that we'd be gospel-centered in our actions, that we would go forth and we would do. It does us very little that if we have very gospel-centered teaching, very good gospel-centered preaching, great gospel-centered conversations, gospel-centered worship, which no one can deny that, we have those things. But then when we exit these doors, if we don't live gospel-centered lives that affect the world around us, then what have we done? James would say, your faith is dead. You're hearing the good news, but you're not believing it. Which leads me to the final point. It's this. The reward of genuine fear and action and genuine belief and action the reward is rest. It's rest. So let's finish up. The author fin uh, finishes this statement or his, this brief passage by saying this, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. We have already addressed this idea of the Sabbath and how God rested in response to the completion of his work. Likewise, our ultimate resting with God is a culmination of the life lived here out on earth. All right? So we are living this life on earth, and then we enter this rest with God for eternity because this work is finished. Now it's to go on to be with Christ. 
You see how that works? See, the finished work of Christ, it's been, uh, Christ's work is finished. God's work in creation is finished. We've had the seventh day from the seventh day of creation, right? God's work was complete. And here's the beautiful thing for us. We will one day, either through death or through the return of Christ, as believers, enter God's rest. But He, and that's ultimately, but He is inviting us to enter His rest now. Right now. We do not have to wait to experience God's rest until eternity. We can experience it now. And here's what I mean. When we speak of God's rest, we don't mean relaxation. We don't mean sitting like a bump on a log. All right. Yes, anxiety and worry and pain and all that kind of stuff will go away. We are going to be relieved of those snares. But when we say God's rest in this, in this, con, in this context... It is less about a place and more about a person. It is more about it is less about a place in which where we are going where we are going. It is more about a person to which we are going to have fellowship with. Folks, if you are a believer in Jesus right now, you have the opportunity to fellowship with God now. Now. This is but just an a, a shadow of what the, the fellowship that we are having now is but a shadow of what we will have in His presence. But you can have that fellowship as we speak if you trust Christ. And He has offered that to us. God has offered that to us through the shed blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, entering God's rest meant entering the promised land. But it was more than that. It was about recapturing what had been lost in the fall. Not only would those who had fallen away not enter Canaan, but they also would not be reconciled to God. So when we talk about entering God's rest as Christians, too often we are captivated more by the place. Oh, it's going to have streets of gold. There's going to be emeralds. There's going to be great fishing. I'm going to see my grandma, my grandpa. I'm going to see my dog, you know, all that. We're captivated by the place, but we forget that what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. Let us be captivated by the one in whom we are going to have fellowship with, not just the location to where we are going to have fellowship with. And folks, that's why I see so many believers that, that, that look and feel defeated in life, and they claim to be believers. And I think it's because they're, they're just, and they'll say, I just can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to get heaven. I'm with you. I can't wait either. I'm looking forward to that day. But folks, I don't want to neglect the fact that I can have fellowship with Jesus right now. Right now we can have that fellowship if we trust and commit our lives to Christ. In one sense, as believers, we are still waiting for that ultimate rest. However, in another very real sense, we can have it right now. So that leads me to conclude this way. What is the chief end of man? And by man, I mean human. What is the chief end of man? The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? And they go ahead and answer it, because that's the way catechisms work. The answer is this. 
man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of man. If you say, what is, what is the ultimate purpose? I love that phrase. The main purpose is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the answer. The world can't provide you that kind of purpose, but the Word of God can. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, when it says forever, it does not simply mean eternity. It means forever. Meaning that we can glorify God and enjoy Him right now. How do we do that? By persevering. By committing our whole self to the Lord. By not taking any substitutes. By following Him daily. By giving our lives to Christ. Metaphorically and literally. Giving our lives to Christ. And so my question to you all this morning is, do you really enjoy God? Or do you just enjoy some of the blessings of God? Are you truly resting in Christ this morning? Do you truly live with a healthy fear as we have spoken about? Are you living out the gospel or have we simply just heard it and live in proximity with those who do live it? Let me encourage you this morning to begin enjoying what God has provided to us in Christ. Don't try to substitute the things of the world to bring you joy for what Christ has already offered. They will pale in comparison. Give your whole self to Christ. We have been given access to God's rest through the finished work of Christ. Believe this good news and then live it out as evidence. On Friday, we were in this secret church and we were listening to this message, six-hour message. I made it halfway through. I'll finish the rest sometime online. And talking about God, the government, and the gospel. And it was excellent. Um, but what really, and Debbie remembers this, uh, that I went to her afterwards, I said that video got me. The video got me. And it was a video about reaching lost people groups. I'd have already mentioned this in, in earlier part of this service. And it was narrated by a, uh, by a videographer, photographer, who was traveling around the world capturing these images. And it was, the, the beautiful thing about this video was it was comparing and contrasting our kind of closeted, um, comfortable, manifest destiny life with Saved by the Bell and fast food restaurants, and air conditioning, and then contrasting that with believers in Myanmar, in Afghanistan, in China, in South America, who are struggling every day 
to follow Christ faithfully in the midst of tremendous persecution. Tremendous persecution. And I was greatly convicted by that. Because, folks, I'm one of the comfortable ones. I don't like discomfort. Me and my sister were talking out on the, on the front porch last night about missions. And going on mission to share the gospel or to help a people group will get you out of your comfort zone. And they can be flat dangerous. I was telling her how we had armed guards right on the outside of our gates because they never knew when they were going to try to attack the location that we were in. And so it, it can be dangerous. And that was when we were down in Haiti. And the reason I was convicted was this, is that I am so comfortable in the place that I'm at and I think that my comfort is an idol. That I don't want to step out of my comfort even to share the gospel with a people group who are dying, lost, and condemned. And so that night, actually, I kind of actually don't remember what he said in the second half of that because I was thinking about that the rest of the time. I was thinking, what, what is it that I can do personally? What can I do to help facilitate the Great Commission beyond just this body of Christ? Now, just so you know, he has not given me an answer to that yet. But there are things being pieced together. And so this is my prayer for us as a body of Christ and as individuals is that we would not feel comfortable anymore. That in our idolatry of comfort here where we sit, that God would start making us uncomfortable with apathy and complacency, that it would move us beyond our zip code to go and reach people who are dying for Christ. And folks, I do not mean that you have to travel to Haiti or Africa, or China. I mean, that may mean that you just go down the road to another zip code, but so often we're not even willing to do that. So let me encourage you this morning to take hold of what Christ has provided for us that we might be able to live that out and affect the kingdom for the sake of the gospel by fulfilling the Great Commission, not just in word, but also in deed. Let that be our prayer.